For Beyond Profit, a podcast of the ANA Center for Brand Purpose, I'm Ken Bollier. The drumbeat of optimism for purpose-led business is growing louder by the day. No longer are brands dismissing purpose as a growth driver, a simple wave of the hand. They have seen enough hard evidence to realize that being a force for good can indeed be a game changer. But the concept of tying business strategy to purpose is not new. It dates back to the early 1980s, long before the dawn of Google social networks and the iPhone. But only now is it gaining serious traction in the business world. My guest today is Carol Cohn, a true-to-life purpose pioneer, presently the CEO of the Carol Cohn on Purpose Consultancy. Carol began talking about purpose long before it became cool. And for more than 25 years, she has led the charge to help organizations, nonprofits, and individuals become more purposeful. Carol, welcome. Oh, thank you, Ken. I am thrilled to be on your program. Terrific. So let's start by taking a trip on the Wayback Machine to 1983 when you began your life's work on purpose. Was there a particular insight or a market shift that made you believe that this was an opportunity worth building a business around? I think it was more opportunistic um, and it also got to my love of brands and then the fact that I grew up during the turbulent 60s and 70s and so social justice was embedded in my brain. It was on TV at night. And I combined the two out of a need. Uh, the Rockford Shoe Company came to us and they said they wanted to grow. They were unknown at the time, $20 million. And I tried more traditional marketing, product placement and such. The shoes were so far ahead of their time that really nobody wanted to deal with them. So, you know, part of it was, um, a need to find a way to authentically position them in a way that fit in with culture and society. Um, but it was more about a gut instinct at the time. Beyond Rockport, was it difficult at that time to convince brands that being a force for good was good business? You didn't convince brands at all. Um, at the time, there were two different groups. There was one, the really early adopters, the Ben Jerry's, the Anita Roddick's, the Gary Hirschberg's, and I knew them all we were contemporaries but then there was this emerging group of ceos bruce cates at rockport paul fireman at reebok jim preston at avon and others and then they had this intuition that you had to matter to people that you couldn't just market at them that you had to be part of their lives and so it was more a question of we had the big Rockport success. I mean, we created a billion dollar category of walking shoes at retail. Rockport grew five times in about five years and then Reebok bought them. You know, we connected Reebok and human rights, which really as they were for one point in time larger than Nike, they were becoming ubiquitous and they needed to really find a way to be important and relevant to young people. And in those days, Amnesty International chapters were beginning to bubble up on campuses. So the Amnesty World Tour was a wonderful way to participate. And I'll never forget the day, it was a snowy February day, when Paul Fireman, he had ourselves and he had TBWA, and we're sitting with him and he goes, you know, I'm considering sponsoring the entire Amnesty International World Concert Tour. And he turned to TBWA and he said, well, what would you do? And, you know, they were a fabulous ad agency and we're going to have Sting and Peter Gabriel, they're going to be... You know, they're going to be in front of thousands of people talking about why this is important. And then he turned to me and he said, Carol, what do you think? 
And I kind of paused for a minute and, and Paul leaned in and he said, you know, when a child whispers, everyone leans in to listen to what they're saying. What do you think, Carol? And we said, you need something that is going to associate you authentically with human rights. And that's when we, and he said, great idea, go figure it out. And then we created the Reebok Human Rights Award. Um, it was an award given to young people under the age of 30 doing nonviolent acts of human rights. And we were going to shine a light on all of those incredible activists. And that's what got us close to Sting and Peter Gabriel, because they truly wanted, they were worrisome about Reebok, you know, oh my God, you're going to promote Etta. So we went, no, 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 we're going to partner with you on something that is so near and dear to your heart and culture. And that's what really made that an extraordinary relationship. So Carol, what was the impetus to connect Reebok to human rights? The impetus was, is that Reebok, as it was becoming ubiquitous, wanted to find something that was relevant in popular culture with young people. And in terms of looking what was happening to young people in those days, again, pre-internet, Amnesty International chapters were beginning to be formed on college campuses. So the issue of human rights was bubbling up around the country. And how that was being promoted was the Amnesty International World Concert Tour with Bruce Springsteen, Peter Gabriel, and others, Tracy Chapman, was going to go around the world for six weeks and truly have this amazing concert to promote the issue of social justice. Reebok said, that's something that we could get behind. And the amazing thing that Paul Fireman did is that Amnesty International was looking for 10 $1 million sponsors, which in those days in the late 80s was a huge number. And Paul, he is so smart. He said, no, we will be your sole partner at $10 million. And then he turned to me and he said, now you figure out a way that we can have an authentic engagement and bridge to this. And the Reebok Human Rights Awards lasted far beyond the um, initial tour. It lasted for years and years and years. And it gave Reebok exposure in a way that they could not buy. It also got them close to Sting and Peter Gabriel, who came for no cost to their events annually to truly celebrate nonviolent acts of human rights by young people. So tell me how the conversation around purpose has evolved over the past three decades. Uh, were there any driving factors? One, I'm so excited about the um, evolution of purpose. When I started, you know, there are many, many names for this. And it started in, you know, 83, you had American Express and the Statue of Liberty Restoration Project. They called it cause marketing. It was very transactional. And then companies started to embed a social issue on a long-term basis. We branded it Cause Branding in 1999. And then there were new names such as Corporate Social Responsibility and Shared Value, and then ultimately the name Purpose. But what were the true levers to this? One was the internet. The internet made companies transparent. You could not run and you couldn't hide. You had to be forthcoming with your character and your values. One, the need to matter, that you couldn't just market at. You needed to be in part of people's lives. There were just too many choices for brands and businesses. Um, and then we started getting in the later 2000s and then in the teens that we've been in the last decade, recruiting. 
that millennials now, they want to know what a company stands for, why they should go work for you, should they advocate for you, and should they actually even utilize your products. So a lot of reasons have really forced this. It's no longer in the wind at your face, it's the wind at your back. You've mentioned to me previously that American Express, like you, is a purpose pioneer. Um, what did the company know then about the power of purpose that continues to serve it well today? I believe American Express is a brilliant marketer. And they could see what was happening in popular culture. And they could then think, how can we tie in an authentic marketing way to something that is urgent today? So the Statue of Liberty in 83, that was urgent. Then they started looking at hunger and they created charge against hunger. And yes, they had a business need because some of the establishments did not want to use the American Express card because they had a higher basis point. But they gave them a reason to get people into the restaurants and then they promoted it. The next thing they did, which I thought was absolutely brilliant, was Small Business Saturday. They looked into the marketplace and they saw small businesses struggling, but small businesses were so much a part and parcel of local communities. And they picked it a, and then they stuck with it. That's part of the brilliance of American Express. They did the right things with the right depth. Then they also advertised it and they communicated. And that's one of the challenges today in purpose is that companies could have a really great idea, but they don't have the depth, I call it the roots in a giant, beautiful tree, or they don't communicate once they have the roots and the authenticity. So why is that? Why do you think brands aren't actively communicating the great job they're doing around purpose? I think today that there is now a tug of war, and hopefully it doesn't become a war, within the company to who owns purpose. Is it, definitely it's the CEO, because he or she has to say, what does my company stand for? How do I show my character, my values and action? But then who is going to be their lieutenant to figure this out and execute? So you have the CMO, you have the CCO, you have the head of public relations, the head of HR, the head of public affairs, you have the head of strategy. And the exciting thing is that there is this tug of war of who is going to lead this. The most important thing today is it must be an integrated C-level team that's going to bring the assets of the organization. It's gonna bring what is the true meaning of that organization? What is its purpose? Why does it exist? And I love the fact, for example, that CVS, you know, they reinvented themselves from a pharmacy to being about health. So it's CVS Health, and their purpose is helping people on their path to better health. Or Unilever, making sustainable living commonplace. And so, or there is Panera, food as it should be, clean food, or Microsoft, empower every person and organization on the planet to achieve more. Or Walmart, save money, live better. What's happened in the evolution of purpose is that it started out transactional, then it became brand, then it became about taking core capabilities and bringing them to life. Then it became purpose as DNA. What do we stand for? How do we bring it to life? And then it is wrapping them all together in something that is a true North Star that helps the company grow, whether it's recruiting, whether it's innovation, whether it is taking its current assets and making them work harder. It is such an exciting time 
but I counseled our listeners, don't fight against each other to lead this. Come together to make it a symphony, not a cacophony. Well, you know, I agree that it's the dissemination of purpose does in fact start at the top. Um, do you also believe that it's the role of everyone within a company to elevate purpose? I do. I do. It's a, that's a very profound and simple statement. But the challenge is, is that the purpose needs to be clearly articulated. And in purpose, there's the purpose at the core of the company, which may impact society or it may not. Where we are today is that I call it a purpose journey. And that who's ever leading the strategic analysis and then execution, um, they need to know where they are in the journey because philanthropy now is coming close to the center of why does the company, what does it stand for, what can it do? Interest, interesting data point that there's a group called the Committee Encouraging Corporate Philanthropy, CECP. They were started 20 years ago by Paul Newman and um, John Whitehead from Goldman Sachs. 20 years later, they have now changed their name. Same acronym, but it's Chief Executives for Corporate Purpose. And they have, to be part of that, that group, you have to have your CEO as part of it. They have over 250 CEOs. And so you're seeing, we love the ANA Center for Brand Purpose. You're focusing on this as strategy. What are the elements that need to be done to make it right? Because my concern is that while there's so much of this happening, and I say with a huge smile, that there's also, you're seeing the beginning of purpose washing as well. I did want to ask you, you mentioned um, quite a few of the great purposeful brands, including Unilever, um, and you work with several yourself, including Affleck. Can you just tell me a little bit about Affleck's childhood cancer campaign, the introduction of the My Special Affleck Duck? Oh, th thank you for asking, because it's one of the things I am I'm most proud of in my career. Um, Affleck has had a 23-year $125 million commitment to pediatric cancer, and they do it locally in Atlanta, Atlanta um, at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. It's a, um, a recognized uh, hospital. Um, people don't know that Aflac started as a cancer product. And so 23 years ago, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, they sent an executive to ask Aflac to donate $25,000. And Dan Amos, the CEO at the time, he said, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do something bigger and having a greater impact. And he decided to donate $3 million, name a cancer unit within the hospital, and begin on an annual basis to donate millions of dollars to research and treatment. What happened, because Affleck is a very humble company and they don't pound their chest, but they knew that in today's transparent communications world, and that their employees, their agents, and their customers wanted to know about, yes, there's the supplemental insurance, but what's this company stand for? Why should I buy your product? And so they asked their um, C-suite executives, how can we take our commitment and make it national, make it more emotional and engaging? And I was very, very fortunate that they uh, came to us and they asked us to take on that challenge. And in doing our research, 
what's important, and anyone knows in deep creativity, you've got to find the insights, whether it's primary and primary research, secondary research or such. We had to stay in the cancer space because they had invested so much. Um, but we chose to find it wasn't going to be research. Where was an open position? And we found that emotional and social support for children going through an average, this, this is astounding, thousand days of treatments is the average course of attacking the disease for children, you know, in one or two or three years old up to their to their teens. And so found the insight, but then we had to bring it to life. And we brought it to life through, we had a relationship with a very small social enterprise called Sproutel, and they make um, robotic companions for children with illness. They had made a bear, Jerry the Bear, for kids with juvenile diabetes. Um, I knew them from this, and I brought them to ASLAC, and together we asked the question, could we create a social robot based off of the ASLAC duck, which has almost like a 95% awareness in the U.S., that was child-centered designed to help these children as a comforting companion get through this journey. And that became my special athletic duck. It's extraordinary. And it's also received uh, a heck of a lot of global recognition. Can you talk a little bit about that, some of the results to date? I would love to. I, I think, again, key on insights was that Sproutel took over a year talking to 85 children, family, and caregivers. What did they need when they went through this tough cancer treatment journey? And it's fascinating that Spratel said all the ideas they had going in, they threw them out when they listened to the children as young as three. And children, the reason we created Social Robot is because play, children lose all of their sense of agency when they're going through these treatments. They are scared, they're bored, it's painful, and it's long-term, and they lose connection to their pets, their family, their friends. This robot is their comforting companion. So Sproutel created this adorable, he's 11 inches high, he's got soft fur, he's got, um, he's got three engines, four patents pending. You can even remove the fur because you have to wash it to be sterilized in an environment. But he quacks in all sorts of different ways. He quacks with emotions. He has a heartbeat. He is deep breathing. He has nuzzling. He's just adorable. And the most amazing thing is that Aflac was so excited by this that they decided not only did they um, invest $3 million in the development, but they also said we will donate one to any child free of charge through their hospital. It has to go through their hospital because a child life professional will help them understand how to use it in a, in a regimen but they will give them free of charge. And, and this is over 10,000 a year. So we said to ask, so amazing story. So we said, you're going to introduce us at CES. And they went, what? An insurance company at CES? I said, come on, trust me. They all started getting excited because when we went to CES, they have pre-awards. And we entered with no, no thinking we could win the Tech for a Better World Award. And we won it. So going into CES, we had this award to begin to get attention with the over 5,000 journalists there. And the story was just so heartwarming. It was just the right technology, just the right size, surprised everyone. And so we won Tech for a Better World, Best Unexpected Product, Med Gadget Best Award. Then we went on, then Time Magazine recognized us, one of their best inventions for 2018. This past year, we went to South by Southwest 
won Best in Robotics, People's Choice Award, won the Drum Award for Best Technology, um, the Sabre Award for Best in Show. Awards are great. But the most important thing here is getting the duck into the arms of children. And without any advertising, <clears throat> only word of quack, as I say, um, they are now in the arms of 4,000 children, over 46 states, over 155 hospitals, and they are growing. It's, it's, it's really, thank you, thank you. We're, we're pretty excited by it. That is amazing. Wow, congratulations. Affleck is a great example of a brand living its purpose and being fully transparent. What is your message to brands about to embark on a purpose journey? There's lots of points, but I would say that be authentic and spend the time to find the deep insight that people, they go, aha, I get it. So for example, really understanding, going back to the founder story, you know, why do you exist in the world? I think it's amazing that Walmart, which, you know, in the late 90s, they were one of the most hated companies in the world. And it was because they were quiet. You know, they were providing low cost goods to people, but they realized because of their deep impact and the amount of employees they had, the amount of people that they touched, they had to do more. And so their purpose is simple, save money, live better. And they're not a perfect company, but they're doing so many things to help with communities and with their employees and with equal opportunity. So it's going back to your original story, finding deep insights about your values and your character, then finding the crossover with the core issue. Very often you should ask your employees because employees have a sense of what the company should stand for as well. Well, unfortunately, with all the gains that we've had in the purpose space, Carol, you know, we're also seeing a rise in purpose washing, which you mentioned um, briefly. How do you define that term and what are the core issues that you see at this point? Purpose washing is like pink washing, green washing. Um, it's just that its purpose becomes the shiny red object, dare I say, in an organization. And the organization doesn't understand to have a giant, beautiful tree, you need to have deep, deep roots. And you need to fertilize it in wonderful ground and you need to feed it and you need to water it. Purpose washing is just doing it because it is the hot thing to do. And there are examples. And I, and I know that um, when Nike came out with its Just Do It campaign with Colin Kaepernick, and there was such, such controversy about this is not right, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I am a shoe dog. I grew up with Rockport and Reebok, and, you know, I know a lot about shoes. I've watched Nike for decades. This was, this is their attitude. You know, this was totally a characteristic of really rooting for the underdog. So I knew that that was very, very authentic. Um, there are, you know, I don't want to point any fingers, and, but there have been some wonderful campaigns that I was so disappointed when we found out that the company didn't walk the talk. One was Audi and their Soapbox Derby ad with, with girls. Loved it. I loved it after watching the Super Bowl. But then we found out that they did not look at their, you know, and, and a marketer would not ask HR, what are our employment practices or what are our diversity inclusion? Because traditionally, marketing sat in one seat and HR sat in another seat and PR and public affairs sat in different seats. 
Today, to avoid purpose washing, you need to all come together, bring your resources and your assets so you don't miss step either intentionally or not intentionally. Another one was Fearless Girl. Fearless Girl, you know, the statue, it was fabulous. And actually, Fearless, I was at a WeWork outside of Fearless Girl, and I'm only about six inches taller than Fearless Girl. I love Fearless Girl. But then people asked State Street, what were your diversity and inclusion practices? And they weren't up to snuff. And so, you know, you, you take Gillette, which I love Gillette. I've worked with them in the past. Um, and that they had their toxic masculinity ad. And they also said they would donate $3 million to Boys and Girls Club. That was good, but not deep enough. And so I know companies are trying to jump on social issues, especially as they break, in terms of breaking the popular culture. But they need to pause and say, do we have the depth of our history, such as AFLAC and 23 years of pediatric cancer support? You know, what are our other policies? Because in the transparency of the Internet and the Twittersphere, if you don't do this right, you are going to get nailed so hard. So there are so many great examples today of companies doing this right. And people always say, Carol, what are your favorites? Well, Unilever because I've, I've got to work with Unilever. I love Paul Pullman. Obviously, he's moved on. Keith Weed says, you have to stop marketing at people. You have to matter. Unilever, they have so delightfully shared best practice. They have a great booklet called Five Levers for Behavior Change, because that's what this work should do. It shouldn't just be about a, a shiny red object and a great ad, but about changing the behavior towards the environment, towards women, towards education and such. Patagonia is one of my other favorites. They exist. Um, to, they use their business to inspire and implement solutions to the environment. They um, provide 1% of their profits uh, for, for the planet. They have um, their action works when President Trump started attacking the environment on various areas. They created a, date, a dating service to link consumers to local environmental projects. I love that. They just created a $20 million venture fund for innovative environmental projects called Tin Shed. So they are extraordinary. CBS is extraordinary. Starbucks does so many things right um, that when they had their little misstep with race, you know, with their, their race project, people gave them the benefit of the doubt because they had Beanstalk and they had their Starbucks um, college achievement plan. Always, always innovating. There are 100,000 opportunity youth investment. Starbucks does it so well because they asked the question that was, you know, how can I ask my employees to stand for my brand if I don't stand for theirs? You know, Howard Schultz was so profound. I know he's left, but I, he's indelibly left the purpose embedded in Starbucks. And I expect incredible wonderful things in the future. And then you can also be in the B2B space. You know, JP Morgan Chase with their $100 million investment in Detroit, really working with local, local organizations to rebuild that, that amazing city. So there's great examples in the marketplace. You need to go fast, but you need to go with people that understand how to do this. And you also need to be integrated in the C-suite. I would agree. The stories out there are many. At least that's what I'm finding right now. Just companies doing some fabulous work. So, Carol, it's time to set the record straight. Um, there's, a, <laughs> there's a fair amount of skepticism among brands about whether purpose drives sustained growth. What say you? 
Oh my God. Purpose, it, it's so wonderful today to see ENY or DNT or um, you have uh, that um, S&P and Google did a piece of research and found, this was last year, 83% of companies that overperform on revenue growth link everything they do to a purpose. Why do they exist? Um, ENY has great research. They have the Beacon Institute they've created to study this. And the companies that invest in their purpose have a 10 plus percent faster growth rate. Um, I have been in the bowels in a good way of Aflac and Rockport and Vaseline. Uh, we created the Vaseline Healing Project and they tested the healing project, helping refugees with recovery um, with you know ads that were straight product ads. And the split screen refugee ads that helped to increase sales dramatically, but it brought Vaseline from the back of the medicine cabinet to the front. And I know that they had a had a comment from one of their consumers. I have now learned to love Vaseline again. And then you have Larry Fink. It's kind of the 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 letter that was heard around the world in 2018. His letter, and he runs BlackRock, and it's over three trillion in assets managed. And he said, without a sense of purpose, no company can achieve its full potential. In 2019, he said, purpose is not the sole pursuit of profits, but the animating force for achieving them. And I think the word animating is so, so powerful. You know, think of an eight person skull. When you have the coxswain and he, you know, he or she is just, They've got a metronome of all those oars working together. You get an organization that maximizes and mobilizes people and resources versus managing them. So there are there are many other proof points. There's Project ROI, which is a meta-analysis of over 100 different CSR surveys and sustainability surveys. And they can show you how there's, there's a 1.26, I believe, increase, billion-dollar increase. Um, in companies that follow purpose. So it's here to stay. It just needs to be practiced authentically with insights, collaboration, and it needs to be on a sustained long-term basis. So as you look ahead, what excites you most? What excites me most is, is a number of things. Um, this past week in Bloomberg Business Week, the cover story was on Gen Z. Gen Z lives and breathes a whole different world, even different from the millennial world. Gen Z expects companies, bar none, to live their values. They expect products and services and the way people provide them to be supportive of the environment, to be supportive of social issues of all kind. And Gen Z will work for companies that are engaging authentically in their values and social issues and purpose, or they'll go work on their own. And so I think Gen Z excites me a lot. Um, certainly millennials, um, they're voting with their wallet, they're voting with their jobs, they're voting with striking um, social activism. So that's exciting. I think what's exciting to me is that almost anything can be a social issue if you dive deep enough. And so, you know, in the beginning, when we, re when we identified breast cancer for Avon in the 90s, you did not talk about breast cancer publicly. And, you know, in October now, the entire month turns pink. Um, diversity and inclusion 
immigration, I mean, all sorts of different ways you can cut the environment, um, the integration of both social issues and environmental issues. What excites me are products that are being developed. Um, I was talking to the head of the U.S. Bank Corp Foundation, as well as she is the head of social responsibility. They're creating products for the unbanked or the underbanked. Um, Prudential is doing the same thing as investing in opportunity youth or investing in real estate for people to make it accessible. And so when you see the shift from the social issue is on the outside of the business to the center of strategy and it's inspiring product innovation, that's what really excites me. And it's so exciting for young people because they truly can be inventive, but also help society help issues of all different ages and wages and colors and places, as well as help the environment. Cool, so I have one last question for you, Carol, and that's, do you find yourself applying the lessons that you've learned to date in your life outside work? Well, I work a lot, <laughs> so I don't have, have that much um, time outside of work. But the lessons I have learned have been, one, I've been passionate about this issue um, since I started in the 80s. And my purpose is to up-level the purpose, my clients, the industry, young people, and I love doing that. So work isn't work to me, it's a passion. And so I, I love to share, whether it's our research or whether it's client work or whether it's being on a program like this. Um, I've learned about persistence um, because when I started, it was really lonely. And, you know, we could have been at dinner with American Express. That was it. There was nobody else, you know, it's our table for four. Now you're, you see agencies, you see consultancies, you see individuals, you see companies of all different sizes and shapes. And, and they're asking, the C-suite is asking the question, you know, what do I stand for? How do I find the integration of both my business and, it's the power of and, and society, so I look for that and as well also, you know, preparing. I mean, this work, and this is why I want to counsel my marketing colleagues that this, yes, there's great creativity there, but there's also a lot of depth and preparation and then persistence in terms of how are you changing the behavior of your organization, your employees, your local communities, you know, those deep roots that I talk about. So I take all of these passion, persistence, and preparation People who know me, they know that I've been showing horses for years. I quit when I started my company in the 80s. I went back 20 years later. It was very different, but I still had, I have a great ability um, when I'm jumping horses. And uh, three years back, I was national champion. Um, the, height, the height was a little lower, but it was still uh, very exhilarating to be persistent, passionate, and prepare because you really need to focus if you're going to go into the ring and you're going to beat, you know, 30, 40, 50 other horses. Well, Carol Cohn, thank you so much for the enlightening conversation. This has been terrific. Well, I appreciate it. And I would just like to say to all of the listeners out there, um, this is so exciting to take purpose into the center, no matter where you are in the organization, even if you are in data analytics, because you need the data to inform the insight to pick the issue, to find the partners. And so I will end with this question, what is your purpose? 
If you would like to learn more about Carol and her company, Carol Cohn on Purpose, visit PurposeCollaborative.com. That's PurposeCollaborative.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.